You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Welcome. Um, Hopefully, wherever you're at, you're not getting the uh, deluge of snow and cold weather that I am here in Iowa. Um, Hopefully, wherever you're listening, it's a little warmer, a little nicer, but uh, if not, you know, winter is only a winter long, as my mom used to say. So uh, hopefully uh, we'll, uh, we'll turn the corner on this and on a lot of things, because uh, today we're actually going to be talking, as much as we try to avoid COVID, we, we, we can't completely avoid it. So we're going to actually talk about uh, COVID and, and a recent study looking at treatment in COVID and colchicine. So we'll talk about that in just a second. But first, uh, if you're a new listener, thank you so much for, for taking the time to listen to us. Uh, you know, if you are a longtime listener, first time listener, you like what you hear, head on over to where you get your podcast, hit that like button, subscribe tell all your friends and family, and most importantly, head over to our producer, CE Impact, and uh, take a look at the uh, uh, great list of, of, of CE topics and CE uh, programs they've got going on, uh, some, uh, you know, in varied, you know, er- varied areas of pharmacy, and, and I think you'll always find something that, that's going to be interest to you in your practice. Also, very affordable stuff, including uh, listening to this podcast. You can sign up for something, head over to their website, answer a question or two, and get yourself a, a little CE for every time you listen to a podcast. I can't think of an easier way to, to get CE. So uh, so head on over and do that. So uh, today we are going to talk about the Corona study. And yes, I had to practice saying that a couple of times. So um, as everyone knows, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to belabor where we are with COVID because I think everybody kind of is, is well aware of that. But we're still, even with, with the vaccines, looking things looking good. And I mean, there's data from Israel now, you know, where they've actually managed to vaccinate almost 50% of their population that they're finding, as you might expect, uh, um, uh, I mean, uh, uh, hospitalizations are plummeting and, 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 and hopefully things will go back to normal there soon. Hopefully things will go back to normal here soon as well um, as we get more and more people vaccinated, but that's not going to abrogate the need to have, have, have good treatments. And, and so, you know, there's probably not been a rush to try therapies, uh, especially repurposing older drugs uh, uh, for a disease certainly in my lifetime and probably since, uh, you know, maybe, maybe even, maybe even the 1918, uh, so-called Spanish flu. So, you know, there's been this, this mad rush to try to find uh, therapies that are, are repurposed drugs that we already have that hopefully aren't too expensive, aren't, uh, very dangerous, that may have some benefit. And, and certainly, you know, uh, there's a lot of other therapies being studied and in, in, in studies and stuff like that. But, uh, just recently in, a, in the preprint server, uh, um, uh, med archive, uh, uh, the Co-Corona study was published. Uh, you may have heard this actually is, is made a lot of the rounds uh, in the lay media as well as, as medical websites like, like uh, uh, Medscape, where they're touting things like a 25% reduction in, in, in hospitalization and death. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this today is because I think this is this study is a perfect example of, of a, an old trick that, uh, that is sometimes used to, to make a result seem better than they are. And that's, you know, uh, you know uh, elevating uh, relative results versus absolute absolute results. And we're going to talk about what that means in this study uh, here in just a second. So why would colchicine, which is a drug that's been used now for over 2000 years for gout, it's one of the one of the original drugs that, that Hippocrates talked about. Um, you know, it's also used for things like like pericarditis and, and Mediterranean fever and, and, and all sorts of stuff like that. You know, why why would it work for COVID? And of course, it, it all comes back to this inflammatory uh, a response that some people obviously not everybody, but some people get that where the immune 
immune system kind of goes crazy, um, and and in, uh, particularly interleukin six and, and 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 some of the some of the other interleukins that uh, increases uh, the, the the risk of pneumonia, primarily probably because of capillary leakage of, of fluid in the interstitium, and 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 that leads to you know again that kind of ground glass opacity that that my doctors talk about so much when 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 they're when they're seeing these patients, and that can lead to, to COVID pneumonia and and eventually in some unfortunate patients acute respiratory distress syndrome. So, you know, if, if we could catch that inflammation, uh, you know, at early or, or what they're calling the cytokine storm early enough, uh, could we keep uh, a serious uh, um, uh, pulmonary uh, problems from these patients from happening? So that's that's what a lot of things are being looked at for. And, and, and colchicine certainly is a potent anti-inflammatory. It's why it's obviously used for gout. It's why it's used for pericarditis and stuff. So certainly I think there's biologic plausibility about why you would want to use uh, a colchicine for, for, for these patients. So that's kind of the background. The co-corona study uh, was actually a study that was run by the Montreal Heart uh, um, Institute. Um, and, and, but even though it, it was it was started in Montreal, um, it, it actually is it was uh, done in six countries. So it was a very large study, probably one of the largest studies in COVID patients to date. It was a randomized controlled trial. So it's, it's going to give us, you know, kind of the highest level of evidence. And and for another time, we can certainly have a, have a discussion about, you know, you know, randomized trials versus other types of, of literature. But I think we all agree that that the best way to determine causality, determine that yes, this drug does what we say it's going to, is 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 to randomize patients and 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 to and to blind them and and the, the investigators if at all possible. Um, and so this was a randomized controlled trial. Um, now you could argue that that given the the notorious side effect profile of colchicine, you know how how good is the blinding? And and um, that was one of my. Uh, uh, um, critiques of the study was that, you know, if, if you take a drug and all of a sudden you start getting terrible diarrhea, it's a pretty good bet that you're going to know that you're on colchicine. So that's just something to think about. But in this study, they did randomize patients to uh, who had COVID, and we'll talk about how they determined that, uh, to 0.5 milligrams BID for three days and then 0.5 milligrams daily for another 27 days. So it was, it was a month treatment, so it wasn't like a, an antibiotic treatment. You, they got colchicine for a month with a loading dose of 0.5 BID for three days and then 0.5 daily for 27 days. Uh, um, uh, many of the pharmacists that are listening are probably going, well, we don't have 0.5 milligram colchicine anymore on the market. And that's exactly right. We only have 0.6. So that is another issue about the external validity of the study. And we'll talk about that in a second. So who did they include? They included patients who were over age 40 and had received a diagnosis of COVID-19 within 24 hours. So that was one, one big key piece is that uh, you had to start treatment within 24 hours of the diagnosis of COVID-19. Uh, 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 they were not currently hospitalized, no, nor under immediate consideration of hospitalization. So they they were sick, but they weren't they weren't um, uh, sick enough that they had to be either hospitalized or, or in having impending hospitalization. They had to meet one of at least uh, uh, several high risk criteria. So patients who are more likely to get super sick from COVID, and that's patients over age seventy, patients with a body mass index of over thirty, patients with diabetes, patients with uh, a systolic blood pressure of greater than one hundred and fifty, patients with known uh, respiratory disease known heart disease, known coronary disease, uh, patients who had a fever of over 38.4 within the last 48 hours, uh, uh, dyspnea on the time of presentation, um, and then something wrong with, with their white 
white count, if they had a, a low white count or, or pancytopenia where all their counts were low, or if they had uh, uh, the combination of high neutrophil and low lymphocyte count. So again, this was a very broad group of patients, uh, you know, basically anyone who had more than just kind of simple cold symptoms or simple flu symptoms uh, uh, other than fever, I think, uh, with COVID were, were considered for, for inclusion into the criteria uh, into the study. Uh, they excluded inflammatory bowel disease patients. Uh, critically, they did exclude patients who had uh, creatinine clearances less than 30 moles a minute because we don't really know the right dosing of colchicine in those patients, especially for this indication. Chronic liver disease, um, uh, chronic diarrhea, because that's probably going to make things worse. And then anyone who was already on treatment for colchicine or receiving a cancer chemotherapy. So uh, even though the, the, the inclusion criteria was pretty broad, the exclusion criteria was also nearly as broad. And, and even if we were to, to uh, uh, you know, really kind of say, yeah, this is going to be the standard of care, there's going to be significant swaths of patients who, who would probably not be candidates for colchicine because of chronic kidney disease or liver disease, things along those lines. So um, the uh, um, you did not actually have to have a confirmed diagnosis of COVID by PCR to be included in the study. You just had to have symptoms and then uh, uh, basically have some sort of epi epidemiological link to somebody who had a confirmed COVID uh, infection. So for example, if your uh, significant other that you're living with had confirmed uh, COVID and you started getting symptoms and uh, that suggested COVID, they counted that as a, as a positive COVID. So so keep in mind that in the, in the totality of patients that they looked at, they did not... Uh, uh, have to have a positive PCR. However, a significant majority of the patients did have confirmed PCR. And before they went forward with the study, they said they were going to do a do a, a uh, analysis just on the PCR positive patients. So even though the the, the whole study looked at it, an, an entire population, a significant majority of them were PCR positive, and they did an analysis on those patients as well. The primary endpoint of the study was, I think, a good endpoint. It was a composite of death or hospitalization due to COVID-19 in the 30 days following randomization. So within 30 days of, 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 of uh, having uh, COVID and, and, and starting the therapy, were you hospitalized for COVID or did you die? And it, they didn't, you know, it didn't have to be death from COVID, just, you know, death period. Uh, the secondary endpoints in the study were, were the primary endpoints separated, as that usually happens. They also looked at the need for mechanical ventilation in the 30 days, so in other words, sick enough to, to, to be hospitalized and require mechanical ventilation. They also looked at adverse effects. However, interestingly, they did not discuss in the in the preprint paper. They did not discuss either um, uh, uh, neutropenia, which is uh, uncommon, but I've certainly seen a side effect of colchicine. And most importantly, didn't uh, discuss uh, myotoxicity, like rhabdomyolysis or muscle problems, uh, which is again another uncommon but serious problem with colchicine, especially in patients who are concomitantly on. And, uh, other drugs like statins, which which can potentiate that, and and with the the, the population that they were talking about, you know, a significant number of them having the diabetes, having having a, a lung disease or having um, heart disease, as you might imagine, uh, I would assume a lot of these patients were on statins, and so they don't talk about really that at all in the study. So that would be something that, again, as pharmacists in particular, I'd be a little bit concerned about um, as as you, as you go through that. So uh, again, a very large study, almost forty five hundred patients. So you know, um, uh, yeah. It, it, it got started, I think, around April and, and went really right up until uh, the end of the year. So, I mean, they were able to, to recruit a ton of patients in the study. And so uh, uh, 4,488 patients actually were, underwent randomization. Um, and um, uh, the, But the, that was the total population. Uh, and, 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 and unfortunately, when you look at the primary outcome, there actually was no statistically significant difference in the, in the primary outcome in the total population. Remember, that's the patients who had, uh, you know, assumed 
but not confirmed COVID and the patients with confirmed PCR. So when they broke it down and did look at the confirmed PCR patients, so just patients who had confirmed COVID, they actually did find that the primary outcome reached statistical significance. 4.6% of that population was either hospitalized or died in 30 days compared to 6% uh, percent, uh, in, uh, in, in the placebo arm. And that did reach statistical significance with a p-value of 0.04. Uh, when they drove it down, when they dove down a little bit deeper and took a look at at um, um, uh, took a look at the uh, you know these this this primary outcome was was two outcomes so was it hospitalizations or death. So that was driven almost entirely by hospitalization, um, and, and it was actually hospitalization that that reached statistical significance in the differences between the culture and placebo group and not death. And so, yeah, if you do a little deeper dive, it seems like most of that primary outcome was avoiding hospitalizations, which is certainly an important outcome. Uh, they did not find a, a difference in any other outcome, um, and so it seems that if you really take a look at the at, at the study in depth, that uh, it seems that colchicine does have have an effect in avoiding hospitalizations in high-risk patients who have COVID-19. So that's good, right? What about side effects? Well, um, they, as you might imagine, uh, more patients in the colchicine group, about 14% of patients uh, had uh, diarrhea um, compared to only about 7% of patients in the placebo arm. And that was statistically significant difference. As I said before, they didn't talk at all about monitoring for cytopenias or, or myotoxicity. But interestingly also, and again, this might just be the play of chance, uh, they didn't run statistics on it. Uh, pulmonary embolism was more common in the colchicine arm. So there was, uh, there was 0.5% of patients in the, in the colchicine arm who had a pulmonary embolism compared to 0.1% in, in the placebo arm. Again, that might just be the play of chance. I, I'm not sure you can you can assign causality to that. So, so you know, the, the the when you read the study, what I really walked away from is that is that it uh, there is a statistically significant uh, and, um, and probably clinically significant uh, decrease in the risk in hospitalization between colchicine and placebo in this study, but 4.6 compared to 6%. Now. You know, the, a lot of these, a lot of medical websites, a lot of lay media are, are touting this as kind of some sort of miracle drug. And you know, wow, this is this is really going to be a, a, a big improvement in the way we treat we treat uh, uh, COVID. And and it is, you know, it is it is what it is. It is it is a a positive study, so that's a good thing. But uh, you read the medical websites and they talk about you know this 25, 30 percent reduction in hospitalization and death. Well, when they when they're talking about that 25 or 30 percent, of course, they're talking about relative risk reduction, right? You know, 4.6 is about 70% of 6.0. 6, uh, so yeah, there's about a, a 25 or 30% relative risk reduction, but the absolute risk reduction was only 1.4%. And this is where, and again, I, I know a lot of people listening are, are well aware of this. So, so, you know, I apologize if, if I'm, uh, you know, if, if, you've, if you're like, yeah, I know all about this, but this is why number needed to treat and the calculation of number needed to treat is so important, you know, in, in these kind of studies, especially studies that have uh, um, a, a, a multiple outcome that's all brought together in, in one gigantic outcome. So composite outcome studies in particular, I think number needed to treat is really important. And it's a simple calculation that anybody can do that really gives you an idea of something called the treatment effect. In other words, you know, is, is, is this a, a very powerful treatment that is, is likely to improve a lot of people's uh, outcomes, or is it not as, as likely to do so? And as I'm sure many of you know, calculating number to treat is easy. All you need to do is, is take uh, uh, um, the reciprocal uh, one over the absolute risk reduction difference. So in this case, all I did was uh, uh, calculate, uh, you know, 6% minus 4.6%. And obviously you have to divide both those by 100 and then just take the reciprocal of it. And you come up with, in this case, a number needed to treat of 75. So in this case, based on this study and based on, on doing some research in the study, you'd need to, you need to treat 75 patients to avoid one hospitalization with colchicine. Again, that's not 
small. It's not, it's not, it's not bad or anything like that. But it's, I think, you know, when you, when you frame the results like that, it certainly isn't quite the miracle, you know, an incredible advance in treatment that that I think is 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 sometimes alluded to in the lay media. Certainly, it's a nice tool in the toolkit to have. Um, I think we're going to need to really wait until the entire paper is published to really get some more information, especially about safety. Because again, I, I was very surprised they didn't they didn't talk really at all about cytopenias or myotoxicity. And with five, you know almost five thousand patients, I think you probably have enough patients that if that were to be a problem, you'd probably see it crop up. So I was kind of interested. You'd be interested in hearing hearing that. The other piece I think, especially for some of the prescribers listening, is is and I know many of the pharmacists, especially the community pharmacists, were well aware of this, is that colchicine is no longer cheap. Um, you know, yes, when I came out of school, you know, uh, it was it was pennies per per tablet, right? It was super duper cheap, but uh, because of an initiative by the FDA, FDA now probably more than 10 years ago, um, um, uh, the, uh, that basically resulted in uh, a, a, a company called UBC Pharma, who uh, actually did a randomized control trial with colchicine in, in gout and found, not surprisingly, that it worked in gout. Uh, the FDA gave them market exclusivity for several years uh, to, to produce their own colchicine and declared all generic colchicine that had never really gotten FDA approval was one of the many old, old drugs that kind of got grandfathered into approval. Um, uh, they, they said, no, can, nobody can make those anymore. And only, only the, the, the FDA approved version can come out. And, and, and in the years since that, we've had a couple of other brands that have come out as well. But the, in, in, in a very short period of time, uh, Colchicine went from penny a, pennies a day to $10 a day. Now, the, that was when, when Cole Chris, when the only name brand of, of, of Colchicine came out, the prices dropped some, but, but uh, you know, my, my research on the subject and asking some friends of mine, you know, they say that, that, that a month of colchicine in patients is probably going to run you around you know, 125 to 170 70 bucks, depending on, on, the, on the pharmacy and, and, and all that uh, and, the, and the brand. So, I mean, let's round it to about $150. And, you know, so, you know, a 30-day course is not going to be pennies in the United States. It's, it's, it's going to be more than that. Um, I suspect that most insurance companies will not be willing to, to easily uh, cover uh, this off-label use of colchicine. So, I, I, you know, I think that I think that the the, the monetary costs are not insignificant, especially when patients are having to pay out of pocket for it. Um, and and again, you know, I, I, the safety uh, of, of colchicine, especially because they use 0.5 versus 0.6 in the United States, um, are, are are something that I think really needs to be fully flushed out. So, my I kind of walked away from the study saying, you know, I, I wouldn't say I was underwhelmed. Um, um, I, I would say I was whelmed. If I can steal something from uh, from Young Justice, the the TV, the DC TV series, I was whelmed. Um, I mean, I think I think that there is a a, a role for this, and it certainly seems that in, if, if we could target patients in particular, you know, high risk patients who might seem to benefit, who knows, you know, as as, as more analysis of this data is done with five thousand patients, they can probably do that. We might be able to drill down into the patients who seem to get the most benefit from it. You know, maybe it's it's the diabetics, maybe it's the patients with known respiratory disease. Well, and I think that's something that that may come with the uh, full publication of the paper in the peer reviewed literature. Again, keep in mind, and that's just the world we live in nowadays that that we're making huge treatment decisions based on on, on studies that have not actually gone through the peer review process that are that are that come up in preprint servers or in some cases uh, uh, even just press releases uh, we have found ourselves having to make uh, therapeutic and, and, and other decisions based on so you know it'll be interesting to see when that comes out hopefully soon hopefully they'll, they'll kind of get the peer review process going and we can get some information and really find out you know who is most likely to benefit from colchicine and and as the as a as a pharmacist 
just as something I would be very you know, interested in is making sure these patients don't have renal disease, that they're not on concomitant statins in particular, because I think those are two patients where, where I think the adverse drug reactions may actually out, outweigh the benefit of, of the medication. So so interesting study. We'll see what happens when it when it's completely published. Uh, before we wrap things up, we will uh, get back and talk about this. But first, a word from CE Impact. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. So I certainly don't mean to be a, a negative Nelly on this. I'm not trying to say that, that, that it was a flawed study. No, I think it was it was a really, really relatively done study. Uh, you know, the Cole Karina study w- uh, w- uh, was a randomized controlled trial. It had a, a very large population. It had appropriate trial design and outcomes. In a, and 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 so I think I think the question is, you know, what's the 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 size of the treatment effect? I think it is fair to say that it is small to moderate. Um, we don't have a full uh, a grasp, I don't think, uh, um, of the average drug reaction profile. And I think the cost is going to be a bigger issue than I suspect many uh, prescribers think, because I think especially many more veteran prescribers will think, oh, hey, you know, saying it's, you know, probably you can probably get 100 of them for, for five bucks. And that's just that's just not the case anymore. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to find out where uh, uh, the, uh, these patients, uh, which kind of patients can really benefit from that. So that does it for this week of of, uh, um, Game Changers Clinical Conversations. Again, thank you for listening. Head on over, subscribe, like, tell your friends, and head over to CE Impact uh, to, to sign up for some great CE. I will talk to you next week. Remember that uh, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. So, catch you next week.